Do we know what we're talking about? <laughs> Season three. Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. This and this <laughs> is Pod Have Mercy. Yeah, so today uh, it's just me and the doc, Dr. Rick No, who is a friend of mine. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming and just chopping it up and chatting about things. And Thanks for having um, me. Yeah, it, you, you would think automatically since we have a doctor, uh, we'd be talking about COVID, but alas, we're not going to talk about COVID. We might, but that's not what I think is fascinating about your story. So you and I know, and people who are paying attention know that Afghanistan is big in the news and there have been hundreds of, I mean, what do I think, about 120, 30, 40,000 people that have left the country, uh, a lot of them refugees, I think the vast majority of them refugees. And so this past week we had a call with Interfaith Ministries, which is one of the local ministries that does refugee services. And you, you and I were chatting beforehand. They say that we could get anywhere from two, 3,000. I think it's gonna be a lot more than that because at, um, one of the military installations here in Texas, I've heard they already have 10,000 uh, refugees that are there and more coming. And so, you know, the way they, they're doing it now, they come in and then a lot of the nonprofits help and they get resettled to communities like Houston in the Gulfton area where a lot of them will come. We've seen that with Syrian refugees in the past year. And, you know, we talked about ways to be helpful and all that kind of stuff, which we can talk about it in a little bit. What made me think about you and you and I were texting is not only do we know each other from golf, we know each other from just running around and stuff like that, but man, your story of your family you were you and your family were refugees and i'd just like you to just kind of share your story so people can hear what it looks like because i think sure. sometimes this whole thing about refugees and stuff is so politicized you right. know and it gets really into this negative uh conversations and stereotypes it's like we'll hear from someone who really is like has been through it and that's yep. you well first uh john thanks again for uh having me um just watching the news over the um, in the events over the past several weeks, um, so I've just been filled with a flood of emotions. Mm. Um, it's heartbreaking um, when you see um, uh, the events that have taken place. Just the sheer desperation that you can um, uh, see in these stories and the in the on the faces of uh, these Afghans, and it brings me back to um, uh, the experience that my family and I had when we fled uh, South Vietnam at the end of the Vietnam War in April of uh, 1975. Mm. Um, I was um, a few days before turning three at the time, um, so I don't have any personal memory of it, but I've talked to, I'm a, a big fan of history and, and I've talked to my dad and, and a lot of relatives about that time. Um, and so the, the Afghan, um, the events in Afghanistan have really uh, made me think about our own personal experience and all that that entailed. And what that entailed was um, a lot of people that had huge hearts mm. that helped uh, my family and I um, along the way from um, the U.S. military to other Western militaries to uh, churches, uh, not-for-profit organizations, um, you know, just to, you know, to make a very long story short, we um, traveled um, to four different uh, refugee camps um, mm. uh, from our exodus in Saigon 
um, to finally landing in the United States. And those uh, refugee camps were in uh, the Philippines, Guam, Hawaii, and then we um, uh, finally landed at Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. And, you uh, could have stayed in Hawaii. I could have stayed in Hawaii at, uh, <laughs> been, at Tripler. Arkan, <laughs> yeah. Arkansas. That's right. Um, and uh, so there were four main military uh, uh, refugee camps in the U.S. at that time. Yeah. And my family and I uh, were assigned to the one in Arkansas. My wife and her family got very lucky. They were in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Oh, there you go. But there you go. <laughs> and so um, being in a family of seven, so I've got four siblings, um, in American terms, we had a huge family. So a family of seven. Mm-hmm. At this point, um, President Ford had uh, passed uh, the Indochina um, Refugee Assistance Act in May of 75. Um, the World Council of Churches uh, was heavily involved in trying to get sponsors for these 120,000 or so Vietnamese refugees that had just landed in the um, United States. And so we were at Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. For, the, uh, for several months in the summer of 1975, and then a church in Panora, Iowa, um, Panora Church of the Brethren. Really? They um, uh, stepped up and sponsored our family, um, provided us with an apartment in Panora, Iowa, which is a small retirement community 45 minutes northwest of Des Moines. Um, gave my dad a, a, a job. Um, started my older siblings in school, and um, we were there for six months, uh, uh, the first six months of our time um, in the U.S. Um, we connected with uh, other relatives um, who were also sponsored by other uh, churches throughout the country, and then um, over the next five years moved from Oklahoma to California. In California, my parents both got two-year electronic technical degrees. And then we moved to Houston in 1980 when my dad got a job with uh, Texas Instruments. Oh, yeah. And then my mom was one of the first 250 employees at Compaq. And, um, you know, the rest of the American dream is history, as <laughs> you might amazing. say. So we've been very, very um, blessed, very fortunate. And um, no way would we be here um, where we are at today without the assistance and help and love um, from so many i've heard you talk before about the relationship with the church and you recently it, not that long ago you recently went back but it was just interesting how those connections that this this little church you know wanted to do something for a refugee family out in the middle of iowa right which just goes so, show anybody can help but and, there was a the, unique connection there absolutely in the summer of um uh, 2005, uh, my younger sister actually had the idea to, um, on the 30th anniversary of um, our time here in the United States, um, she thought it'd be a, a great idea to go back to that church and, and let them know that, um, first to say thank you, and but also let them know that we had not forgotten, you know, what they had, um, what they had done for, for us. So we were able to, um, uh, myself, my younger sister, my oldest brother, and our parents, um, went up to Panora, Iowa. Um, they had a reception for us on the Saturday evening before the church service. Prior to that, I kind of interviewed my dad, and we just sat outside for a few hours, and I said, tell me about the last 24 to 48 hours in Vietnam, and he gave me this, you know, blow-by-blow account of how we were able to um, flee uh, Saigon um, as it was, uh, as the Viet Cong were, um, you know, um, about to 
uh, take over the city. Um, so we were able to um, see a lot of the, the key members of the church who had helped us, who were instrumental in um, getting the church to agree to sponsor a refugee family had passed, but a lot of their um, spouses and kids and children and so forth who are grown now um, were still there and, and remembered us. And at, at the reception, there was a, a lot of photos and so forth of and memorabilia um, of our family when we were there for uh, six months in the um, late 1975. So we had this reception. They asked me to speak at the um, at the service the next day, um, and I was honored to do that. And um, again, my, my message was, um, uh, you know, just one of eternal gratitude and, and just to let them know that their efforts um, hopefully um, did surmount to something very, very positive in the, in the life of a, a refugee uh, family. Now, I know you, you say you don't remember, but when you interviewed your dad, of especially like the final days or the final moments, and then you watch, I mean, even though you may not remember, I mean, you were there, so there's got to be some psychological DNA kind of thing, some memory that's even shared family memory, that, that emotive, you know, I mean, you're going to get that emotional pathos from your dad, if from nothing else. But when you see all this stuff going on with Afghan refugees, I mean, what what was it like for your dad and the, it, just trying to get his family out? I mean, I can't, I mean, I look at this and it seems... Yeah, it's, you know, that's a great dramatic. question, and John. And, and, you know, in my earlier comments, uh, you know, the, the word I used uh, was desperation. And that's the feeling that he really described in the, that last 24 hours, because he realized as someone who was... Um, um, very educated and also a captain in the South Vietnamese Army that if he wasn't able to uh, flee, then he personally would um, um, be imprisoned and who knows what else, um, tortured, etc. But more so, he, he realized that with the regime that was um, about to take over, just that chance of free will personal free will and opportunity would be taken away. And that was his biggest motivating factor mm -hmm. to do everything possible to get um, um, he and his family and an extended family out of Vietnam. Um, and so in that 24-hour period, he was able to, he was very key in getting 37 um, family members out Wow! Uh, in that 24-hour so period. So he wasn't By, just thinking about him and, and y'all. I mean, he was thinking right. about extended family. Yeah, he was driving his um, moped all over Saigon. You know, this is, you know, spring of 1975, so there there wasn't any um, group texting or emailing no, or yeah. anything like that. And so he <laughs> went, um, my phone lines were down and so forth, so he went from uh, wow. family to family, house to house, to notify as many of his um, uh, siblings' families as possible. Um, to meet at this U.S. cargo uh, warehouse, and, and, and thankfully we were there just at the right time and got on a couple of U.S. military buses that took us to the Dunson Yut Airport, and then um, from there um, we awaited, awaited in a um, hangar until it was safe enough to board a couple of U.S. Chinook helicopters that took us out to a cargo ship out in the, um, a U.S. cargo ship called the Green Hornet out in the South China Sea. And the so, Green Hornet. Yep. And so we spent 
Was it um, like a super? It was like an old timey <laughs> yeah. superhero or something. Definitely my hero. Um, so we went um, on that ship to the Philippines and and then it made our way across. If, to if the I United remember, States. I could be wrong, and you could say, "Yeah, you're wrong." But I, for some reason, it was like the timing of you of y'all like arriving. Wasn't there some like the timing was perfect or something when you arrived at the location? Right. So um, my my dad, one of my dad's really close friends who has since passed, uh, worked for the U.S. Um, embassy in Saigon, and he had gotten word that this was going to be one of the key meeting and pickup points um, on uh, during the last few days. So this was the day before Saigon fell. So this is April 29th. Um, 1975 and it was in the mid-afternoon and we got to the u.s cargo uh, warehouse and there are already thousands of um south vietnamese people already there who'd also gotten word and so forth but they were inside the grounds of the of the warehouse uh, so it there was a fence and a wall and the, they were already inside at that point in time we thought oh we were too you missed, late you missed it yeah like yeah. literally we were too late but about 30 minutes later, two U.S. Two US uh, military buses pull up outside of the grounds where we were in line and waiting and said, come on, you know, it's it's time to go. And, and there were there wasn't any mm. issue regarding who was there first or this or that. And yeah, um, and I, I think about, you know, the the people that were ahead of us um, um, who were ahead of us, who had arrived earlier at that u.s uh cargo warehouse and i pray that um mm. that they eventually uh, made it made it out of there and but i don't know that uh, yeah with any certainty hey i i don't think however the story happens where where you were in line or whatever i can imagine the the sort of the guilt and the fear everybody experiences right i mean you think about now and you look at the the news and you wonder the the people that have been camped out by the airport for however not long uh and probably have the right documentation, but it's like who gets to the right gate and who, right. I mean, it, it's almost like there is no controlled system for this thing. I mean, it's, it's very chaotic yeah. and that's why they talk about, you know, people want to make it sound so easy. Like it's easy to get everyone out. It's not, it's not even easy to get just the military out, much less when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that you're trying to get out. Absolutely. You know, it's, um, you know, controlled chaos would be, um, is absolutely an oxymoron, and and I would say it's more on the chaotic side than the, the controlled the, side. One of the things too that fascinates me is in conversations, whether you want to say it's political or uh, xenophobic, you can fill in any word you want. But there's, uh, I think the vast majority of people in the United States look at refugees that have assisted the U.S. and have been partners and all this kind of stuff they seem to be that but there's always a small percentage of people that just we don't want those people over here because doggone it they're taking taking american way of life or whatever what i'm fascinated to hear from you is your story your family story like you came you your family took like that american dream by the horns <laughs> I know you went to Rice, but your daughter's a Longhorn, so she you is. take it by the horse. But I mean, I've I've just always been amazed. I mean, you and your family. I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, you didn't take it for granted. We didn't, um, John. And I would say that, um, you know, we felt so 
lucky and, and fortunate and blessed to have made it out. And we, you know, kept up with relatives and, and friends who didn't make it out. And um, and life turned out to be even in Vietnam turned out to be even worse than um, mm-hmm. than anticipated. So my my parents instilled in in my siblings and I just this um, sense of gratitude that we should have, and also a sense of make them most of every opportunity that you have because life could be so different and I personally felt that I was carrying the baton for a lot of the people that and a lot of the three-year-olds who you know at the time I turned three during the exodus um, I was carrying the baton for a lot of the three-year-old kids that didn't make it out Mm. Um, and I was didn't want to waste uh, that opportunity and felt that would sort of dishonor them and that they weren't able to make it but I was so I, I just said you know I'm, we're blessed to be in the um, best country in the world um, it's not perfect but um, I, I, I just we've been helped by so many people here and, and during that whole process that um, you know I, I try to look at the good um, of, of what's going what's here you know the good of uh, people and, and, and the good of, of you know, the, the best aspects of being an American. And, and um, so I, I, we just have this sense of every day is icing on the cake. It, it could have been so, uh, so different. And in turn, you know, we try to make the best of it. And also, more importantly, think of how we can be that, um, that helper yeah that for somebody else someone how can we show love the way that so many people showed love um for us and so many of our um, family members and and countrymen and countrywomen yeah you look at all the divine timings that they they, you have that and then you have this church in iowa right and they're planting seeds in your life and then you you move around then ultimately i mean you graduate from school you go to rice yes sir and you go to medical school. I did. Now you're a surgeon. I am. <laughs> Cutting up on. I mean, so I think about um, and 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 I and I think if I remember correctly, I mean, all your family took advantage of the opportunities and have become successful in this country, contributing to what this country's about. I think Absolutely. that's that's the thing when I think back upon on the history. I mean, none of us, unless you're Native American, none of us, we all came here from somewhere. That's right. It just might have been a lot longer. And I bet that all of us had someone along the way that was pretty instrumental and key and gave us a, a nudge or, or major helping hand yeah and it no wasn't doubt. all all done by yeah it uh, wasn't like we i pulled myself up by my bootstraps by myself right. you know i mean you have to have some tenacity you know to to accomplish anything in life you yeah. got to have some wherewithal but you also have to have some opportunities yep. and i think that's what our country does better than any country in the world is that you have opportunities it's not Absolutely. always easy. And like you said, I totally agree. We're not a perfect country, no. but the opportunities are there. And to think that, you know, your family is a refugee family in 1975. And then to look now and you think about, you got a daughter going to the University of Texas, you know, hook them. I, I, I shouldn't say that because my daughter's at the <laughs> University of Oklahoma. It's hard, for, it's hard for me to say that She's going to be, I know, she's <laughs> not going to be happy about right. that. But, um, 
But yeah, and then joining a sorority and you think the things you're able to work to allow your children to have and right. you want them to have the same opportunities. Absolutely. And then I think about these families that are escaping persecution who have helped us and coming from. To me, I said this the other night, there was a, one of the news stations was interviewing uh, interviewing us and me and uh, Rabbi Strauss. And I just think this is not a political issue. It shouldn't be politicized. This is a humanitarian crisis. These are folks who have cooked for soldiers and helped and translated and they've done everything, you know, in, right. in helping with us. And they get if they get left there, you know, their names on a list. That's right. Probably not going to be a good outcome for them. Um, you know, the way I think of it, John, you know, it's a um, global um, community. community. I, I, I recognize that there are borders and, and so forth, but I, I try to keep it very simple in that. Um, you know, I just want to play a role in, in helping a fellow human who has the same very basic needs and wants um, that I do to to be safe, um, to be healthy, to have an opportunity to thrive, to have an opportunity to uh, give their families uh, a chance to succeed and thrive. And so I, I try to keep it very, very simple and, and non-political. Um, um, and so I, I, it's heartbreaking that, um, that the current situation has played out the way it has, you know, I tell my kids all the time, you can only control what you can control, you know, given the, your God given yeah. abilities and gifts. And I, you know, I anticipate that, um, I'm, a, I'm excited in that I will, we all will have an opportunity to help out um, yeah, because you who, and I are in mean, a situation that was a lot out of their control. Exactly. And out of our control. That's right. You and I didn't have anything, you know, whatever somebody wants to argue about what happened in Afghanistan, good, bad, and different, you and I didn't have anything to do with that. Right. And the people arguing about it didn't have right. anything to do with it. But we can do something now. Absolutely. And we're, we're about to have, you know, who knows uh, how many thousand new um, uh, refugees, immigrants, but I, I, I just say, new neighbors and, and yeah. friends who, again, um, are in a difficult circumstance, um, but again, have the same basic human needs and wants that you and I do. And yeah. I, I'm excited, and I don't know if that's the right word, but I anticipate, uh, you know, an opportunity to help them the way that so many uh, helped uh, my family and I. Yeah, and so we were on a call uh, this past week all of our pastors with a group called Interfaith Ministries. Now there's actually several, there's about four or five uh, organizations in Houston that work with refugees. They do this all the time. They've been doing it for many years, whether it was Syria or um, Ethiopia or whatever it is all over the world. So when refugees come into the country under certain status, and one of the things we learned is there's like lots of different status stages. Um, some of them are already approved. Some of them will come in and go through the process of approval, but then they'll go to cities. So they come into a military installation, like in Texas, and then they'll come to Houston. Now we're told it's anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000. I think it's gonna be a lot more than that, but I, I could be wrong. That's just what they say. And there are gonna be families, and there are apartment complexes in Gulfton, in the area of Houston, where a lot of these families are located. So what's good about that is they have a community Right. of people from their country together. Right. But what people don't know is, so there's a, there's a refugee um, resource 
But what happens, it costs a lot of money for these families to get over here. There's a lot of expense involved. And then when they come, if they are on what these, these lower status called parole status, right. then they do get money for certain things, but they don't get money for food or medical health care. And so the initial thing they just said to us was the first thing we're going to need is financial contributions yep. initially just to defray the cost of that. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing we started here. And I know some other churches have done that as well um, to just say that's the best way you can do it. So for us, it's at chapwood.org slash relief. You can go and find links there. I'm sure Memorial Drive Methodist has links as well. You can search their website, but anywhere you can go, you can also go to Interfaith Ministries and there are other refugee yep. groups as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I happen to, I serve on the board for YMCA International Services. Okay, good. And, um, and uh, they provide programs and services that that uh, you're, you're describing to the T. Houston has a reputation for being extremely welcoming to uh, the refugee and immigrant community. Um, Houston happens to be the second largest Vietnamese American community in the United States. So um, a lot of these organizations, including YMCA International, developed in uh, the late 1970s in response to the influx of of the um, Vietnamese American families such as myself. So... um, I think we have the infrastructure for it. We have the history, and, and I know uh, that uh, I'm confident that we have the heart um, to do it as well. So YMCA International is one that you've worked with. Are there other agencies you can point people yeah, interfa- to? Yeah, um, uh, YMCA International, uh, Catholic Charities. Catholic Charities. Yeah, those are the two uh, main ones. that. Um, so one that I, um, I volunteer with directly, and then a uh, collaborating organization is Catholic Charities. Yeah. Well, I would encourage people to to support financially at this early stage. And then there's going to be opportunities just like your family. There'll be opportunities for people to adopt families. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that they have on, if you go to Interfaith Ministries web, website, the the early stages too is financial. But then like, think about you're moving, you have nothing but a, like the bag you carry. I mean, when you're fleeing, you don't have anything. Right. So like clothing and just silverware or plates. <laughs> or a pot to cook something in. I mean, they have these apartments, but they have to be outfitted. You know, it's just basic, basic things like, like bunk beds. Like, you know, we partner and built this summer, our youth ministry, just all they did was build these bunk beds, this low cost things where people who need places to sleep. So all of these things, like you said, together, the infrastructure that we're fortunate to live in a city that has a big heart and it has all this stuff together. So we're a good, we're a good place for people to land. One, one other, um, a type of program that I want to highlight also is uh, with YMCA International, um, we provide a lot of counseling services. So mm-hmm. the the amount of um, emotional, uh, psychological, mental, you know, anguish and stress uh, after experiencing some, something like this, you know, it's unimaginable, you know, kind of indescribable. But we've definitely put more attention into those sort of mental health uh, programs and services for um um, these refugees as well. So, well, I think it's going to be an interesting time and it's a good time for, I mean, you know, uh, Haiti's been through a lot. Now we have, as we're sitting here today, uh, we just have hurricane Ida going through Zach who's producing today for us. Everybody knows Zach Blunt from Chapelwood and you have family staying with you yeah, from, from New Orleans and Louisiana. Wow. So grandparents and, cousins and 
everybody. 30 plus. 30, 30 plus. And some of them are maybe going back tomorrow to just, because I, I asked Zach, I said, well, how, how are they doing? How's his? He's like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to look yeah. at. You don't know what to go back to. So. Well, Zach, thanks for doing that, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's That's so, awesome. but you know, there's just, there's so much need around. And then of course you got on top of all this, you know, pandemic stuff. Yeah, one of the, um, one of the statements I heard uh, regarding, you know, if there were traumatic injuries or folks that needed to be hospitalized because of the hurricane, that the hospitals in in New Orleans are full because of, of COVID patients. Mm-hmm. And so it, I just, as a healthcare professional, I can't even imagine the type of, um, triage issues and so forth when um, you have a, uh, a pandemic and then, you know, have a natural disaster on top of that and just have orchestrating and, and well, organizing all of that. It, you know, it's hard when we have a doctor here not to talk about <laughs> COVID, but I mean, I really, my, for me, the main thing from you is that story, your story, your family's story to have the door open, the opportunity, you make the most of it. That's the way I'd like for people to look at refugees who are coming. I I, th- I think when we're talking about this is also, because again, you can't have conversations now without people listening through a certain lens. You know, there's a difference between refugees who are coming in fleeing persecution and chaos and people who are trying to illegally sneak into the country. Although some of those folks are seeking asylum and refugee status as well. We have a status for this. There is a process Process. for refugees. And so I think we both agree we had a process and our country should never be a country that's not welcoming to the refuge. I mean, the Statue of Liberty, what it says, bring me your tired, your weary. And they become a part of this, um, this, but you know, great, one professor of mine calls it not a melting pot; it's a smelting pot, because actually the the they keep the they they don't lose their chemical identity, but they kind of all blend together. That's so right. there's still the uniqueness of the yep. intermingled stuff and everything. So I just would you know encourage people um, to look at this as a, as a wonderful opportunity for us to. I, I was sharing the other day to me that one of the greatest uh, stories Jesus tells fits in this is that story of the Good Samaritan you know, cause they were trying to trick him, but it's the Samaritan who's a different ethnicity, a different religious practice than the man in the ditch who helps. And so when Jesus says, which one was the neighbor, the lawyer has to say the one who showed him mercy. He wouldn't even say the word Samaritan. He said the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus's response was very simple. It said, you go and do the same. You go and do likewise. That's right. And I thought, so this to me is like, there's someone in need, you know, doesn't matter if they're Muslim or Buddhist, or whatever, uh, we're called to help them if we can help them. Absolutely. And I think we have it's the certainly not a, a political issue. It's a people issue. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, COVID though. Uh, so in, 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 ivermectin. <laughs> yeah. Horse deworming. You're all about that, right? Are you prescribing that right and left now? Is this uh, overwhelming? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> we we so have, as, as, as a surgeon, we, as a surgeon, we, I we have uh, fun on this podcast. We kind of let our hair go. down. Right. I, I will say if you haven't heard ivermectin is like a cow deworming medication, <laughs> but you know what I learned? Here's how irony gets you. So all, all I've even texting some people who are like, what do you think about ivermectin? I was like, no, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I don't think so. But the confusion is like, there's all this stuff on the internet. People talk about it. Then I'm like, it's for horse deworming. Then I go to the dermatologist last week and get all this stuff on and go, oh, you have rosacea. We'll get you a little cream. I get the cream, Sulantra. 
and I look at it, and you know what it is? It's ivermectin cream. I'm like, ivermectin's everywhere. It is. Uh, <laughs> I'm we... putting it on my face, <laughs> but I'm not expecting it to cure COVID. It's supposed to help the red and the bumps on my skin for apparently, I don't know. Yeah, I, I know a lot more. I think I <laughs> my fund of knowledge is mainly on the on the front end, on the prevention end, mm -hmm. than the treatment end. <laughs> so, but as a general surgeon, I. I um, uh, do not treat COVID directly. Um, no, I directly. understand. Yeah. And I'm not trying to get you in sure. a trouble thing. I'll get myself in trouble for both of <laughs> us. Right. But I'll just tell you that, you know, uh, I think there's a thing in the world now where people have like, you're entitled to your own opinion, uh, but there then there's truth. There's just data. Now, the thing about data in, in the world we live in, which is a postmodern truth world, people take the data and they try to spin it to say sure. whatever they want. What you cannot get away from is that in our region, 93% of the people who are hospitalized right now are unvaccinated people. And like 99% yes, in can, the U.S. are unvaccinated people. You cannot get away from that no, very so you, clear yes. uh, fact. And the average time, I think uh, when we were on a call last week or something, the average time, if you are vaccinated and if by chance you do go in the hospital, which is very, very rare if you're vaccinated, unless you're much older or transparent. Sure, there are, there are exceptions. The average case is like, four days you stay Correct. in the hospital wherever you're unvaccinated you know i know a guy has been there for two weeks and he's in his 40s yep and healthy yep i absolutely i think um i think the greatest um show of of love um for for your neighbor uh, regarding this situation is to get vaccinated but i just don't want that chip in my arm you know the, yep. the tracking I, chip. I don't either, and I, I while don't I think download that's while I download my <laughs> apps on my iPhone. Right, I'm saying that with my tongue in my yeah. cheek, but yep. no, I I don't know, man. It's um, it's I think the thing I was talking to a guy. I have a, I have a guy I do some spiritual direction with, Jerry Weber, who's a great friend of mine, and you know I need spiritual direction and therapy now more than ever. I've learned, <laughs> um, don't we all? But one of the things, you know, it's just I'm processing, honestly, as a pastor, it's hard. I'm a pastor to everybody, whether you've been vaccinated or unvaccinated, whether you're Republican sure. or Democrat. It's hard not to be discouraged. And, and sometimes it's hard not to be angry. It, you know, to... I'll speak for, uh, you know, uh, a sentiment in the healthcare community right now is a, a lot of frustration. Um, but one um, aspect that I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of is how taxed the um, healthcare system is currently from a um, facility and human resource standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, the the hospitals and ICUs and, and and regular beds are full over capacity um, in in many hospitals because of the high number of COVID nineteen patients who are, as you stated. Um, mainly unvaccinated and so that's affecting the hospital's ability yeah. to take care of the everyday stuff that is continuing despite covid the the heart attacks the strokes the secondary there the was cases an, of appendicitis etc yeah, there was an article in the houston chronicle today or yesterday about a 46 year old army veteran served in afghanistan and i think it was bellevue or somewhere and he had i don't know what it was he but had some, gallstone pancreatitis gallstone pancreatitis uh -huh. yeah you read the article uh -huh. so they couldn't treat him and they had nowhere to send him. They're calling around. There's no right. ICU. There's no hospital. Well, they finally got him like in the VA center, but it took so long that he died. He, he, yeah, he passed from uh, multi-system organ failure. Yeah, yep. and the doctor who's treated him said, I've never had anybody die from this. 
I've never treated okay. anybody okay. who had this, who died from this. So that's a delay in the system. Right. I think about, okay, fine. What happens if you're in a car accident or you have a heart attack or a stroke? That's or, right. I'm hearing a lot of people going into the hospitals or taking their parents in the hospitals and they're waiting days to get into a room. Right. Not because they don't have a room, they don't have staff. They don't have enough nurses right. on the floors. It just breaks my heart um, because it's, it seems like we could have avoided this. Uh, and I still, you know, we can't undo the past, um, but um, going forward, I still think it's the most uh, prudent um, individual action that could play, that will pay a huge uh, dividends for that individual, their families and society as a whole. Are you hearing uh, like, are vaccinations like increasing? Like daily for a while, they got like real low. But I mean, I think I think I've heard like more and more people are going to get them. I hope yes, the um, you know, I, I, uh, the latest I've read is um, approximately sixty-two percent of the U.S. population has received at least one dose, and we're now in the mid-fifties regarding fully vaccinated. Um, I still think that is a very disappointing number, but hopefully, we'll be able to. Um, I see those numbers rise sharply soon. Well, I appreciate you coming by. Thanks for having story. me, John. Yeah, well, I do. I really do. Yep. I mean, I, I, you, you came to mind when the news started coming out about refugees in Afghanistan, and I thought, I got a friend who's got like one of these amazing stories, and um, just glad for you to come and and share it with Thanks us. Thanks so much for having me. Now, and, uh, Matt's not yeah. here, but we have kind of a sign-off way we do where I'll say my name, you say your name, then I'll say Pod Have Mercy. You yep. ready? Yep. A one and a two. I'm John Stevens. I'm Rick Now, And this is Pod Have Mercy. <laughs>